Welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by the team of Resolve Asset Management, where evidence inspires confidence. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in the mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everyone in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Mike Philbrick, Adam Butler, Rodrigo Gordillo, and Jason Russell are principals of Resolve Asset Management. Due to industry regulations, they will not discuss any of Resolve's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by the principals are solely their own opinion and do not express the opinion of Resolve Asset Management. This podcast is for information purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For more information, visit investresolve.com. Welcome to another episode of Gestalt University. This is Mike Philbrick, president of Resolve Asset Management. And in this podcast, we tackled the idea of social media and how it has democratized access to media for the entire world. That includes wealth and asset managers. This unprecedented opportunity allows the capture of investment mindshare via digital marketing like no other time in history. Today, I speak with two marketing professionals, Chad Weston and Simon Albert from Traction House. And these gentlemen are veterans in the marketing world, specifically in the domain of wealth management and asset management. Also joining us in the call was Justin Castelli from RLS Wealth Management. Now, you may know Justin from his podcasts, YouTube channels, webinars, and whatnot. So here we have a veteran in the field of digital media in the domain of wealth management who shares some of his secrets and tips. I think you're really going to enjoy this. Together, we go deep and, and tackle the applications of digital marketing as it relates to wealth and asset management businesses, the network effect, and the potential potential impact on your client and prospect marketing, what you might expect as a workload, how to get started, the type of content you should focus on producing, how you might go about differentiating your marketing and selling from others in your particular area of expertise. I think we covered it all from niche markets to uh, changing the paradigm of no like and trust in a digital economy. I think if you're like me and think about working on your business as much as in your business, I think this particular podcast has a number of gems and will either get you started if you're thinking about the opportunity that this provides to you, or if you're a professional who's been at this for a while, I can tell you that Chad Weston blew my mind several times along the way. So without further ado, let's get started. Welcome to Resolve's podcast. I am joined today by three extremely established guests in the world of digital marketing, where we're going to talk about the paradigm shift that's coming on in the world, the way that the the commoditization of certain areas of our world is changing the way that we think it's changing the way you should think about the whole marketing and sales process for, for your businesses in the wealth world. And so today I've got two gentlemen from Traction House with me. I've got Chad and Simon. I'll leave it to the listeners to look up Traction House on the web and take a look at the various things that they do. I've also got a wealth management guru slash digital marketing wealth management guru, Justin Castelli, with me today. And what I'm going to do actually is I'm going to pass it over to you guys just to give us a little bit of your background. So my name is Mike Philbrick. I'm the president and founder of Resolve Asset Management. And so maybe I'll flip it over to you, Chad, give us a little bit about your background. Thanks. Fantastic, Mike. Thanks for having us on. So yeah, my name's Chad. I'm just working with Simon in the last two years. We're in a startup mode right now with Traction House and 
Prior to that, I had a lot of experience in storytelling, digital brand building, really just communicating value propositions through digital channels and different formats and mediums, a lot of stuff in pitch decks, e-learning programs, websites, that kind of thing. So a lot of experience, diverse, different verticals, just really understanding core message and core philosophies of companies and communicating that to their stakeholders and to their audiences. So it's been a lot of fun. And I met Simon a year and a half ago and we hit it off really well and formed Traction House and it's been a blast ever since. Simon here, spent the last five years in San Francisco where I was running and building marketing teams for Series A startups. And now with Chad at Traction House, I'm essentially just helping finance professionals, investment bankers and stuff like that employ those skills. Awesome. Justin. Yeah. So uh, my name is Justin Costelli. I'm a financial advisor, founder of RLS Wealth Management, which is a registered investment advisor down in Fishers, Indiana. And I'm bummed that I wasn't able to make the trip up to Toronto to record in person, but I'm excited to be on. My angle to this whole social media marketing and digital marketing, I have no background in it. I've been an advisor my whole career. And when I started my firm, which interestingly enough, I didn't even realize it, but today marks four years from the day that I left my last firm to start RLS Wealth Management. So today's a big day. I just knew that this was the way I wanted to grow and I was just going to figure it out along the way. And I've had what I think is a lot of success and it's been a lot of fun. So everything I learned has not come from a textbook. I have no marketing background other than I've just been trying things out along the way and seeing what people are doing and having success and putting my own spin on it. I'm self-taught when it comes to this. I think that's what we're looking for. And I hope listeners can appreciate that the mix that we have on today's podcast, you've got Justin, real world experience, asset management, who have been doing this for better part of 10 years and have suffered many slings and arrows along the way as we've uh, learned more and more. And then we've got two exceptional talents at Traction House who are actually specifically taking well-established marketing practices and then bringing them right to the advisor and small asset manager and large asset manager. So we're going to talk about the actual network effect that's occurring, why we think it's appropriate that you as a small asset manager, medium asset manager to wealth advisor should really be taking this paradigm very seriously and this opportunity that lies in front of you and share some best practices, some tactics. But I think what I'll do first off is I want to pass it over to Chad because he really summarized this paradigm shift that's occurring. And I don't want to steal the thunder. And the combination of words was so beautiful, I could not hope to replicate it. So maybe Chad, (laughs) you can just kind of broaden our horizons, especially for those, for myself and Justin, we've kind of bought in, but I think there's a lot of people out there sitting on the fence and they're like, I'm not sure if this is real. I'm not sure how to do it. So help convince us on why this is such a real opportunity. Yeah. A few years back, you guys might be familiar with a book called Platform. It was written by Michael Hyatt. And the premise behind Platform, this is probably about 10 years now, where it was essentially setting yourself up digitally to build a tribe of folks or a tribe of early adopters or people that are your core fan base. And the way you did that typically was setting up an omni-channel brand presence digitally. So that's your website, that's your Twitter accounts, and that's conversing and taking time to participate in conversations omni-channel online. And what we're seeing is this idea of tribe building and this idea of coming up with a core group of people that really buy into your core philosophy, everything you're about as a person and all that stuff. There's a commoditization of tribe building that's occurring in the digital attention economy. And what I mean by that is the technologies are becoming cheaper. The ability to reach targeted audiences are becoming more accessible for individual advisors for small funds. You don't have to have massive global budgets and beyond taking out ads in the New York Times or any major paper anymore. You have the ability to, within your reach, 
pack a punch and have a tremendous amount of impact and influence digitally now. And so because of that, what you're seeing is you're seeing a shift, a paradigm shift that's occurring in the way we market to our consumers and to our buyers. And in our case, in the finance world, that's complex buyers who are making investment decisions, who have idiosyncratic demand bases. And there's a bit of a process and multiple touch points to get to a place of certainty where you can make an investment decision. And so being able to be in a position where you can leverage digital platforms and establish and build a tribe online is going to really help your efforts and set you up for success because you have a base of trust and a primer that's been established online digitally. So Justin, what are your thoughts on that? I was just going to echo the whole tribe aspect of things. So one of the beauties of being a financial advisor and being able to share your story through this content is you get to be yourself. And I don't know about other people, but I want to work with people that I like. Like, yes, as a business, we all have minimums that we would like to see. But from a standpoint of personality, I want to attract people that I like, which I would equate to building a tribe. And the best way for me to do that is to share my views, let people know who I am, so that if they're following me long enough that they want to reach out to work with me, they already know the important things about me. And they're already going to know the things that might turn them off on me as well. So building the tribe is very big, but it boils down to letting people know who you are and basically creating fans who want to work with you. So you're attracting people who like you for who you are and the things that you stand for and the interests that you have. And you're deflecting people who don't like those things, which chances are they probably would have been problem clients anyway. That's a really great point. I think the other thing that I've heard in today's world of this network effect, where you can build that audience that is truly a reflection of your values, oftentimes the people joining your tribe are joining your tribe, not because of actually what you're saying, but actually what being part of your tribe says about them is really this opportunity to customize your message, be authentic with your message. And that will be a custom message, which will attract a certain tribe, which will truly be, I think, something that you can work with. Like you see, you get less of those, I'll call them incongruent clients, clients that aren't quite your value base. And that's a pretty interesting opportunity, especially in the world of network effect, right? In the world where we have these technology platforms that allow for the build out of a social tribe. Yeah, absolutely. I think that one of the big core concepts behind what we do and what we're talking about right now is the concept that, and this really hasn't changed for thousands of years, that people buy from people that they know, like, and trust. And really 50, 100 years ago, that was holding events. It was talking in different places where you maybe get to reach 10 people, 50 people. But now the different tools that we have allow us to build those big tribe because with one tweet, you can maybe reach a thousand people. It's a big thing that we keep playing on every single day with our clients for sure. I wonder too, if maybe I can get your thoughts and just jump in marketing versus selling. I think there's, there's something there. Who wants to grab that? Sure. I'll jump into that. So one of the things that I would like to set up the context here is to think about the idea of a complex sale versus a simple sale. A simple sale is like buying a t-shirt on Amazon or something like that, where you really leverage social proof. You look at a couple of reviews and you can pretty much get to a place of certainty without a human being involved. You can make that purchase and you can acquire your asset. But when it comes to complex sales, and when we think about complex sales, we're thinking B2B, we're thinking finance, investments, stuff that requires multiple touch points, longer sales cycles, a lot more involved in the decision-making process. The core shift that we're noticing is more and more and more of the certainty spectrum is being achieved online in the complex sale world. So people are self-educating themselves. I think there was a recent study that said up to 60% or more of a decision-making is happening online in a complex sale now. And what that means is people are, from a buying behavior perspective, they are taking time to research and look into you and invest time in getting to know you before they talk to you, before they actually are in a position where they want to hear your pitch and your sales stuff. And we're in a binge economy. We're in a binge era where you jump on Netflix, you're used to binge content consumption, that kind of thing. If you're 
you're not set up with a platform where people can come and binge you and soak up your podcasts and your videos, your blogs, your tweets, and get to know your personality on a digital level, that's really where I think marketing has a good place nowadays is really establishing a personality and a brand presence before the sales process begins. It's making them know, like, and trust you before you ever get the chance to talk to them. So maybe Simon, you can expand on that a bit more. What does it mean about my digital presence or what does it mean about my presence? That whole concept, what should I be worrying about as an advisor or what should I be striving to achieve now that we've set the table and said, okay, you're going to have this learning that happens beforehand. So what does that make my content look like? Have you guys tackled that? And what do you think that would be for the advisor in the asset manager world? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you want to talk to your clients and you want to make sure that you have a good idea or you have a running list of all the questions they can ask you or the questions you hear often. And then you really want to create a content calendar. And when we say content, it can be blog posts, videos, podcasts like these. And it's something that you want to do on a pretty regular basis or every week, for example. And really what you're trying to do there is you're trying to show thought leadership often and really get those people that are on LinkedIn, that are on Twitter, that consume that content to go, hey, Mike knows what he's talking about, right? I trust this guy and I trust that if I call him, he's going to have the answers I'm looking for. As you mentioned, Chad, there's this process of learning that's going on pre-sale. And so if you don't have the content out there, to help them through that pre-sale learning process, it's less likely that they're going to do business with you because there's so much other competition. And I wonder, Justin, maybe you can jump in here and give us some of your real world experience in this because you are, I would say, quite experienced in multiple platforms on this particular topic. Yeah, I've gone with the method of just try everything and see what I like. And I probably could narrow it down and maybe become better at one specific form, but I'm sure I'll get to it later on about why I chose to do a, a bunch of different platforms. But one of the things I wanted to touch back on when it comes to what do you need to worry about with your content that's out there, your marketing, I think it's very important to make sure that your messaging's on point. And what I mean by that is you can't write about one thing and then when they come to see you, have a different story. And on top of that, you can't preach that you're going to do one thing with clients and your existing clients never see that. So you run the risk of if you put out content you think people want to read and hear, but they get a different experience when they come work with you or your current clients don't experience that at all, I think you run the risk of making people upset or turning people away if your messaging doesn't match what they're really going to experience. So I just wanted to put that out as far as something to worry about. Make sure the messaging is on point and consistent with what the experience is going to be. Another thing I was going to throw out there, just to bring a different perspective, I probably would drive Simon and Chad crazy with the way that I do things. And it works for me. And I want to share this just because there are things that obviously work, like having a set marketing schedule and a calendar to put things out makes total sense. But depending on your personality or the way that things are set up, that may not be realistic. I'm a prime example of that. I've tried to have a consistent schedule of producing content on certain dates and certain frequencies, but it doesn't work for me for two reasons. One, my creative juices don't always flow. So I may want to try to post every Wednesday, but if I sit down throughout the course of the week and just can't get something out, then I would rather skip a Wednesday and make sure that the quality of my content is good, not so much the quantity of it. And the other reason is I'm a solo advisor right now. I have a director of operations who helps from the admin standpoint, but I could have every intention of writing to put out on a Wednesday or whatever day it might be. And if a client needs something, prime example, I had a client call last night that she wants to buy a house. That threw my evening off in the beginning of my day because I was working on her plan trying to see if it works for what she wants to do. So it's great to have that calendar. But if you struggle with that, I wouldn't lose hope because at the end of the day, if you find the time to get the content done and you get it out there, it's going to live. So 
whether it's consistently every day of the week or not, if it's there, when people search to find you, that catalog has been built and that library is there for them to find. So I totally get from a marketing standpoint that have a schedule, do it set, do it consistent. And I see why that makes sense, but it doesn't always work out that way when you're running a business and a parent at the same time and have clients to take care of. So I just wanted to share that if anybody out there struggles with being consistent with posting at the same day or whatever frequency, don't lose hope on it. Just keep on creating and put it out there. And maybe with time you develop that habit. I have yet to find that schedule. (laughs) Justin, I totally appreciate what you're saying. And I don't want to sugarcoat this for the audience that's listening. Deploying and executing on a content calendar is a heavy lift. It's a commitment. It's not something that you take lightly. It's something that takes time and effort, especially to put out stuff that's real, original, thought leadership, impactful stuff. And so one of the things that we typically would think about when we're tackling this challenge is go for quality, not quantity. So don't try and post five times a day just because you think you need to post five times a day. Really post when you've got something meaningful in the pipeline that you think you can share that's going to be really helpful. If you're sold out to bring value to your customers before they ever meet you, it's going to show through your content. So just make sure that I just want to empathize with the audience. Like if you are taking on challenges of making podcasts and writing blog posts and you are down and out and you're finding it stressful, you're not alone. Even in the professional marketing world, we face that all the time. It's a difficult challenge, but we're convinced and pot committed that it is something that's worth it. So to prime the market and build that base of trust that you need. Yeah. And the fact that it's hard, that's the beauty behind it all. If it was easy, every advisor and every firm would be doing it. And the value behind this, I think would be minimized. But I have no way to pull, but there's got to be somewhere statistics showing like how short-lived a blog is. So somebody gets ambitious, they're going to write a blog, they do a couple posts, they don't get very much feedback because early on, you're not going to get a lot of traction. It's the long game. You've got to be doing it for the long haul. You've really got to be committed and buy into that this is the way of the future, I think. Like I'm all in on content creation. I spend no money anywhere else to try to grow my business. It's straight up take good care of my clients and put out content. And that's going to be how I grow. So you got to go for the long game. But the fact that it's hard, I think is what makes this so valuable because the good content, there's not a lot of it out there. And depending on what circles you run in, I'm very active on Twitter, finance Twitter. So it seems like everybody has a blog and it seems like everybody has a podcast. But the reality, especially in the US, if you take a bigger look at how many financial advisors there are, there's not very many out there. The ones that are actually of good quality that people derive value from are even fewer. So don't let the hardness scare you away. That's the beauty behind it all. Yeah. The decibel level in the information economy is deafening right now. There is so much noise out there trying to get our attention and compete. So it's almost to say it's not even necessarily enough just to have a podcast. You got to make use of it and really go deep and take time to actually invest in producing stuff that's going to really bring value and establish yourself as a thought leader. And Yeah, to Justin, as I'm sure he's talking about, it's tough to do that consistently, but. Yeah, and just to tag on there, if you look at a webinar that we did on this topic, 72% of people are actually disqualifying dealing with a certain wealth advisor because of their digital platform. So when they're going through talking about where the evidence is, that is very true, that look at yourself, look at your own behavior when you are going to buy something. So let's say you're a wealth manager, an asset manager, step out of that persona and step into your persona as another area of your life where you're making sort of complex decisions. What do you do? Well, you go to Professor Google and you learn about it first and then you educate yourself a little bit and then you make decisions. Why on earth would you think as a wealth manager or an asset manager that it's going to be any different for those others in the field? And so 
I just want to take a pause moment to summarize what we've covered. We've covered the fact that the network effect is out there. There's a paradigm shift happening in the way people communicate and the way they uh, go through the marketing, selling, buying process. And so in order to put yourself in front of that, you've got to have content. And you didn't hear this on the podcast thus far, but when we started, when we were sort of brainstorming prior to the podcast, Justin said, well, there's one thing you got to do the work. Right. And it's just like, there's no, there's no easy way around doing the work. You got to start doing some work and creating some content. So that network effect allows you to build a tribe. You want to be authentic in that something that we can touch on. There's a couple of different ways you might approach that authenticity and how you might want to do that. So we'll jump into that next. We talked about marketing versus selling. The fact that marketing does most of the lifting. Selling is what you're used to. Selling is, hey, I'm at the golf club and let's do business somehow. I think that lacks scale. What we're talking about with the network effect and the fact that you've had this total democratization of the medium world is that there's a low cost of entry. Justin, you said that it just didn't cost much to get all the equipment to launch everything. You can set a written blog up for next to nothing. Like You could go buy your domain, get a WordPress domain for free and start writing. And it might cost you, I don't know, 35, 40 bucks. It's not real expensive. And even people get intimidated by video. You could get a good video set up for less than $1,000. And I'm sure there's plenty of people out there spending more than $1,000 on their marketing budget. So yeah, it's the barriers to entry to get started are not very high. And then I heard consistency of message is probably the primary importance. And then if you can be consistent in your timing, it's good, but it's more of a nice to have. The first thing is if you're going to start, start doing something. And I think to Justin, he's doing it on his own. I will say that Traction House does a lot of this for you. One of the things they do is they provide the marketing calendar. They help you with a a systematic way to attack this problem. So I think that is something that should be considered if you're like, I just don't have the time to do this. I want to outsource it. That's something to do. And I think Justin as well, you are putting some things together to help advisors along the way as well, I believe. Very early stages, but that was kind of a byproduct of doing all this stuff that you're talking about building tribes. I set out to build my tribe amongst potential clients. But what ended up happening is I built this tribe amongst advisors. And I've had a number of calls over the last year just talking with advisors who want to get started or thinking of breaking away and want to use content creation to help grow their business. And it's in a conversation that I really enjoy and I'm getting these inbound calls. So I thought, well, why don't I just set up maybe a consulting business on the side that I can do one-offs here and there and, and see what happens from that standpoint. So yeah, at the very beginning stages, I'm working on getting the LLC set up and see where that goes. I like it. As a person who observes this, because I've had lots of people ask us, I would say that sort of the idea of harnessing platforms, as it were, is not that difficult. This is my opinion. I'm going to throw it out there because I want you guys to comment as well. I find it's the content that seems to be the hardest thing. That's my perception, but I'd love to have the three of your inputs on that. It definitely is the content for sure. But there's a lot of great tools out there. So if you go on LinkedIn, for example, to one of your client's profiles and and you go down to their activity, you can see what those people are reading. You can see what those people are sharing. So when it comes to actually see, if you want to take the risk out of content creation and see what they're already reading, already clicking on, that's something that the LinkedIn platform does pretty well for you. Something else too is if you publish a blog post and it's getting pretty good results, refurbish that blog post, turn into a podcast, turn into a video that takes care of ideation right away. And you can do that stuff without having to think about what am I going to talk about next? I like that. Hey, listen, just on that topic, we did a webinar 
and we're doing this podcast as a follow-up to the webinar, it just allows us to have much more of a free-form conversation about this. Go ahead, John. I was just going to say, that's one of the, another thing that we're getting a little bit tactical here, but content is a heavy lift, especially to produce. Audiences have what's called an idiosyncratic consumption demand. What that means is not everybody likes to listen to podcasts. Not everybody likes to read. Not everybody's cup of tea to watch a video. And so you have to be set up what's called omni-format to be able to appeal to your audience's consumption preferences. And so that's a tough thing. If you've got a topic, if you've got something that you want to express and you want to express it through a podcast first or a webinar and then a blog post and make a video about it, just that topic is a tremendous lift. But some of the things you can do to taper that is if you start with something like a video, which is a rich media format, you can break off a video and take the audio and deploy that as a podcast. You could have that script written as an interview style blog post. You can take 30 or 15 quotes from that and auto tweet those over two weeks. And then you could also run a webinar from that same thing, just like you're doing. And so you can put a lot of thought into the core expression and you can really write out the outline, just like Mike's got here. He's got his notes from his webinar. And then you can really deploy that out in a multi-format way without having to reinvent the wheel every time. So it's just a little tidbit, something to think about when we're on the topic of actually making content. Oh, you stole my thunder. That's why Sorry, I love man. videos so much. <laughs> that one video, you can turn into so many pieces of content, just like you said. So I won't run down that, but that's what I tell a lot of people that if they're going to choose one format, if they're comfortable, video is the way to go because you can do everything that you just mentioned and probably more. Like I actually take the audio from some of my videos and I have Amazon skill that I use the audio from that to be my Amazon skill for the day. So you can get a lot of run out of video without having to recreate the wheel. And the only thing I was gonna say about the actual content creation, it is difficult and that is the hard part. But I think once you do it for a while, you begin to find your voice and it becomes a little bit easier. And then the other little tidbit I was gonna throw out, if you're actually an advisor, if you're having similar conversations with clients or answering the same types of questions in your meetings, there's a good chance that other people have those questions and that could become a topic of a blog as well. So obviously you don't put the personal details from that meeting in the blog post or the content, but use that to help drive the questions. I've done that a number of times of taking a conversation from a meeting and turning that into some content because surely there's somebody else who wants to know the same thing. I love it. Let's flesh that out a little bit more too. So Simon mentioned, hey, listen, looked in your LinkedIn roles and see what people are engaging in. I think you can do the same thing in Twitter, right? The FinTwit environment will have a certain topic that they're enthralled with. And I can tell you from our perspective, that's extremely effective. You really can inject yourself into the conversation. You can provide value for that. So we've got listening to your tribe as they broadcast their thoughts. We've got Justin talking about listening to your clients as they chat with you. Because if someone asks the question, then you know there's three other people. If two people ask a question, there's got to be half your client base has got to be thinking about that. Where else can we create content ideas? What else have we got to help our audience? Even outside of that, just be fascinated with the core niches that you own. And we'll get into that in a second about jumping ahead of the gun here with some strategies, but no jump on it. It helps to be niche down. And the term niche down basically means like there's a webinar we ran not too long ago. And I pulled up an example of a financial advisor website landing page that I really liked. And one of the things that he does is he's niche down. He helps dentists and he helps retirees. That's it. He doesn't help anybody else. Those are the two folks he goes after. And so if you're going to own those niches and you're going to specialize in that group, be fascinated with the conversations that are happening online. Look up all the articles, set up um, Google alerts and stuff like that. And you'll get inspired. I mean, from a creative standpoint, when I'm on the hook to build a site or build a brand or build a keynote, 
the first thing I'll do is I'll get offline and I'll just go find inspiration. I'll put myself in places where I can intake quite a bit and generate a lot of ideas. So don't feel like you just need to sit in your office and just ideate and come up with all this stuff from scratch. A lot of good ideas come from conversations that are already happening online. So take time every morning, even if you just schedule half an hour to just bring yourself up to speed on all the stuff that's going on and then share the article, commentate on it, drop some thoughts, get some conversations going. That kind of stuff is a little lighter on the load in terms of content. Yeah, there's a great tool that we use called BuzzSumo. And in BuzzSumo, you can type in investment management and it'll show you all the top articles that have been read and shared within that space in the last six months, one week, couple of days, et cetera. And you can also see who's sharing that stuff. So that helps you come up with good content and it also helps you reach out to maybe influencers so that they can share that content and it takes the risk out of that stuff. I would add there's oftentimes the questions you can ask yourself, right? So if I were starting out today, what do I wish I knew or what do I know now that I wish I knew when I started? But if you ask yourself that question, all of a sudden you've got a, a flow of ideas that will come to you for your particular group. How about you, Justin? Any thoughts? How do you get the juices flowing? One thing that I used early on to help with the quantity of posts and I think should not be overlooked is curating other people's content. So I do a weekly, I call it a mixtape. I'm a big hip hop fan. So I do a mixtape where I highlight seven or eight other people's blog posts from the week that I think are real good. And the reason I, I like doing that is I don't want the content to always be about me. Look at me, look at what I have to say. Like obviously I have opinions and I want you to know where I stand, but I also want my content to be educational, informational. And I would be foolish to say that I know everything about everything and have the best way to communicate that. So you can even just curate some very good posts across the board. I mean, Tadas has abnormal returns, which has been tremendous for him, which is purely for the most part, all a link fest to other people's stuff. So that's another way to kind of bring value to your tribe of saying, here are some other people's thoughts that I think are worth your time, help you formulate your views and, and go from there. I do think that having a niche is very helpful. And I say that as somebody who up until the last six months never had a niche. In my previous life at another firm, I worked with teachers. But when I started my current firm, I didn't think that was a market that I would be able to grow at the rate I wanted to grow. So I just kind of became a generalist. And within the last year, year and a half, I really discovered that I like working with entrepreneurs. And I know entrepreneurs are still a very vague niche, but for me, that's scaled it down some. And I have a definition of, of what I mean by entrepreneur, which nails it down even more. But I'll tell you from trying to figure out what should I write about? What are things that people are going to care about? Having that defined focus of writing to entrepreneurs, there's a lot of things that I can narrow down where if I'm trying to write to everybody, it's a bigger universe of topics to go. So the niche helps you narrow your focus and then you can go out and research specific things that those people need to know. Yeah, absolutely. One thing that Justin, I just want to back end off of that is the perspective I think that you want to hold when you're thinking about content creation is, is what I'm about to come up with or share or express going to help educate and really bring independent value to my tribe beyond them coming closer to me and doing business with me? Just like, is it really truly a selfless play where you are enabling them to accomplish some great things or educate themselves and move through a learning curve on their own. There's a consumer behavior theory that's gaining popularity these days. It's been out for a while, but it's called the job to be done theory, JTBD. And it's all about thinking about the idea that everybody has a job to be done. And the reason they hire a job or a service or a product is to get the job done. And so from your clients, if you're thinking about what's their job to be done, if it's to plan for retirement or to help a doctor quickly overcome his student debt and set up for retirement, how can you help him get closer to that the accomplishment of that job without your involvement personally right away? And so sort of thinking about content from that perspective is really where that 
value add, value first approach can come from. So it's amazing how that dovetails into what you spoke about earlier in the podcast in that 60 to 70% of the work of the sales should be done via the marketing, which is exactly what you're talking about. I'm going to go and put myself in that non-wealth advisor, non-asset manager position and go seek a service. Well, I'm going to go look for that information, that advice that's personal and purposeful to me. And it's also written in my language. And I think that is one of the beauties of actually taking the approach when you build a tribe of niching, right? If you stand for everything, you stand for nothing. But when you stand for a very specific group, you then can find very specific topics that are relevant for them. You can follow their journals, you can follow their LinkedIn groups, and you can have very poignant, purposeful advice that you can offer the group, right? Helps you maintain that elevated status of a thought leader within the tribe itself. Gary Vanderchuk says, be the TV show, don't be the commercial. And I think that kind of sums it up really well. So we talked a little bit. So there's a couple of different ways you can build a tribe. We talked about niche. You can do it by approach too, which is like, you're going to be revolutionary in some way, and you're going to change the world with some new thing. I think let's just stick with the niche more as we go through this, because I think that is more meaningful and useful to the audience that we're talking to. And so oftentimes people say, well, what's my niche? How do I do a niche? Do you guys have any advice on that? Like, where do I start? I mean, I would just reflect and hang out with some clients that are close to you and look at the last 10, 15 years of your career and just say, like, what am I known for? What am I the guy for? Is it retirement planning or is it is there any particular stuff in the finance space that you are really already with your existing client base, a specialist in and seen as that thought leader? So I think before you get out online and really build up that expression and scale that digitally, really do some homework with your existing base and really just get to reflect on your career so far and reflect on where you're strong. And that could start to point you in the right direction. I'm not sure that's all the answers, but. Well, it's a great place to start. Actually, when you're saying that, and then I hear Justin talk about the fact that he's specializing in entrepreneurs, what came to my mind immediately, and Justin, maybe you can elaborate on this. You're an entrepreneur in, in the wealth management business. You're also running a side spin-off digital thing that you're going to do. And your wife is also an entrepreneur. So I'm not surprised that you chose that as an area that you might be able to add value to. And I said it, it's been the last year and a half. I did not view myself as an entrepreneur when I first started. I was a financial advisor who had a business. But honestly, what helped me kind of go down that path is this content creation. As I've gone further into creating my digital presence, I've tried different things. And I think part of being an entrepreneur is being willing to try something and fail or, or pivot and try something else. And I realized that that's part of who I am now. It's not the way it's always been. And I think that when I thought about who I enjoy working with, going back to the comment earlier, I have some entrepreneurial clients and I really get excited. I enjoy working with all my clients, obviously, but I really get excited about where they're going, helping them with their vision and those conversations. So I thought going forward, if I want to build who I want to work with, those are the people that I enjoy working with the most and have a lot of fun with. Why not do that? And then I kind of realized, well, maybe some entrepreneurs would appreciate the fact that they're financial advisor is an entrepreneur as well, because I understand that lifestyle. I understand that sometimes being an entrepreneur is a sickness because you get all these ideas and you want to chase things when really you need to focus down. And I understand where they're coming from. I also realize that there are probably some entrepreneurs who want some checks and balances and they want that conservative person on the other side of the table who's going to tell them no to everything. So luckily, I'm not trying to work with every entrepreneur out there and I can attract the ones that are right for me. So you're exactly right. I want to be around people that I like and that's a mindset that I really enjoy being with. I think I can bring value along the way. So that niche kind of came to be an obvious one for me. 
Yeah, we had a caller calling in, but uh, <laughs> we're not taking calls on the show this time. <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> Oh, yeah, it's yeah. a great point, Justin. I mean, that's exactly what I was about to say. Who do you enjoy working with? If your job is to talk to people all day and, and to work for them, provide value to them, you want to make sure that you actually like those people. And it's happened for, uh, I don't know if I should mention this, Chad, but it's happened for us for a couple of times where we fired clients, right? And we we just, we got yeah, along. we've been fired by clients sometimes too, every once in a while. We roll the punches, but. Absolutely, absolutely. If you're going to think about your niche, who wouldn't you mind? I think it was a VC who said something like this, but like, if you were to jump on a flight to Australia tomorrow, who wouldn't you mind sitting next to and having a conversation with? I found that to be pretty insightful. I like and from it. an advisor standpoint, I look at it as, do I want anybody calling my cell phone? And when I see their number come up on the caller ID, I cringe. <laughs> if that's the case, then that's not a good client, regardless of how much they have in the form of assets and what they mean to the firm. I don't want to work with anybody that I makes me want to cringe when they call. And that sounds mean, but we only have so much time and we only have so many people that we can help. Why would you take your time helping somebody who's not a good fit? Because the reason that person might make you cringe may not bother another advisor and that advisor can take care of that person even better because they're going to enjoy working with them. And I would love to think that everybody likes me and that I'm the perfect fit for everybody, but I know I'm not. And that's okay. Just as not everybody's a good fit for me and I don't like everybody. So I think it's okay. And just if you come to that realization that at the end of the day, you're not trying to work with everybody. You're just trying to work with the right amount of people for your firm to live the life that you want and grow the way you want to. And that's a finite number of people. It's different for everybody. You don't have to be everything to everybody. Yeah. And as a footnote to that, I just want to say on the selling side, Olin Kloff, who wrote Pitch Anything, it's great books, really helpful. He talks about the lizard brain and all that stuff. But He's a really successful pitch guy. He makes big deal, goes into and does big pitches for big companies and stuff and raises millions of dollars. But he has this core philosophy where he's like, you need to see yourself as the prize. You need to see yourself as the one that people are seeking after. And I know that it might sound arrogant up front, but on a psychological level, if you are positioning yourself as someone who owns these two things and doesn't touch eight other things, I'm really good with these folks. This is what I do. And I've got clarity on that. And I'm not afraid to say, hey, you know what, let me refer you to another financial advisor who I think might be a better fit for you. Just that alone, I think, creates a better better image and a little bit more respect because you're not just taking on anybody. Yeah, I like that. So we're digging into some of the tactics now, which I think are really good. How do you select a niche? How do you come up with some content for those niches? That's great. So we covered some topics there. Let's keep going down that rabbit hole. In my mind, one of the things you have to do if you're going to go down this path is you're going to have to set some time aside every single day, some amount of time to do this new work environment. So those who are starting out, you're going to have to set some time aside to do some stuff. You're going to have to create content. You can outsource some of this. So there's ghostwriters that you can outsource content to. I think there's challenges with that because you really want to have an authentic, genuine voice. But I think you can communicate that through ghostwriters and whatnot. What are your thoughts on that? They're fine. <laughs> They're okay. But if you- A if, resounding bleh. Yeah. <laughs> it just, if you are the entrepreneur and if you're the person with the knowledge, I would say, feel free to disagree. My answer is suck it up. Do it. At least try to try to get started. Write some short posts. They don't have to be long form, 3,000 word posts. Just write a little post that you write on LinkedIn. Your comment on an article. But like Justin was saying earlier, work out that muscle, like just get in the habit of doing it. And once you have your message down, once you know what you're doing, then you can go to a ghostwriter and you can do something like that because the advice, the directions that you can give them is just a lot better. Do it yourself first. I'm a big believer in doing it yourself. And I think the worst thing you can do is use the canned content. Everybody knows it's canned that we see on LinkedIn that typically is the wirehouses and the bigger firms that have very strict compliance. To me, 
I think that's worse than doing nothing. I'd rather see an advisor do nothing and take the time to find what they're going to write about than put out some canned stuff that brings no value. It's just activity to say that you're active on social media, but it really means nothing to, to anybody. I've never worked with a ghostwriter, so I don't know how that actually plays out. And maybe you can get to the point where they can really capture your voice. So it is your words coming across and maybe you just dictate it to them and they put it out there. But I, I'm a big believer. Mike said being genuine and authentic. Those are words I use a lot. I think that your content, if you're going to go into this and you buy into it, it has to be you. I think that if you're not a good writer, then you give it a try speaking and you give it a good try doing video and find that way that you can communicate. There's got to be a way that you can get your message out there and find the mode of communication that allows you to do that. And that's where you go. And then later on, if you can add other things, great. But I think you need to create your own content yourself and be authentic with it. Yeah, absolutely. I was just going to say, I mean, I found a site the other day. I won't say what it is, but I mean, they had a library of pre-written blog posts where you just grab one on any finance topic, switch three variables in your names and then deploy it. And I'm like, this is the kind of stuff that's contributing to the crazy noise that's in the economy right now. Just grabbing iStock, cheap iStock photos and throwing that in your newsletter. People can tell it's iStock. Yeah, I think Justin's right. It's worse than doing nothing. I'm so glad you guys said that. Yeah. <laughs> Do the hard work, guys. Yeah. Do the hard work. Buckle so up. We've tried at Resolve to produce more content by trying to convey the way we look at the problem and that sort of thing with ghostwriters. And it's been nine years of trying to do that with zero success. Wanted to see what the reaction was from the crowd that was totally unscripted. Nobody knew that that question was coming. But that just goes to show you, it is some work. I wouldn't be too intimidated. Echo Justin's comments earlier, like set some time aside. You're going to have to do some stuff. I think there are some things you can outsource. So as an example of some of the products I've seen that Traction House offers, there is some really neat and I think relatively affordable ways that you can outsource some of the digital push. I think that that's true. But again, that's up to you. And Traction House is not the only provider of that. I think Justin's coming up with some great tools that are going to help advisors build this out. And I think that that is something you just got to get your head around of when it comes to a genuine, consistent, authentic message. You're going to have to do that yourself. And uh, unfortunately, so, yeah. But so let's think about we talk about getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. Where does the magic lie? Does the magic lie in your current set of circumstances, paradigms, and behaviors? Is that where the magic lies with creating a new voice for yourself? No, it's going to be new. You're going to have to set time aside. It's going to be uncomfortable. I would offer that you should look at others who have been successful as well. Look at how they've approached the problem and how they've come up with solutions. Look at Justin's digital presence. Look at the Traction House digital presence. Look at what they're doing. Look at ours. And the myriad of others who have had success in this domain and just start to get a feel for how that works. All three of you have some amazing content out there that that really has the opportunity to help. We, As a part of the webinar, we did a cheat sheet of here's how you get started. Justin contributed to it. You guys at Traction House contributed to it. We contributed to it. I would say go download that and start the checklist. But you got to have time. You're going to have to write the message. You're going to have to decide on the medium. And I think this is something that Justin touched on that's really important. What if you're not a writing guy? What if you're a video guy? Well, I've got news for you. 64% of people, this is a stat from Zen Media, 64% of people will actually sit through a 30-minute advertisement video versus only 24% will finish a blog article on the same type of topic. So I think you referred to it as omni... Idiosyncratic demand preference. Right, but the omnipresence too, though. Yeah, what omni-channel, was... omni-format. I think you also have to know where your audience is. Right. So maybe we can touch on that a little bit, Justin. Where have you found your audiences? And then we'll kind of go around the table. 
I wanted to ease the fear of getting uncomfortable with being uncomfortable. When you first start, unless you're lucky and write the greatest first post known, no one's going to be reading or, or consuming your content except for you and your family members. You get to kind of work out the cobwebs if it's been a while for you writing or just the kinks of kind of figuring this out and and not very many people are going to find it. And we live in an age where because there is so much content being pushed out by others and then hopefully yourself, it ends up getting buried, which is okay. It gives you a catalog. It gives you a library. You have X amount of posts by the time you really get some traction. So it looks like you've been doing this for a while and very few people are going to go back and read that first post. So don't worry if it's perfect. I think perfection keeps people from getting started and realize it doesn't have to be perfect, that people give you a free pass when you write a blog. Your grammar doesn't have to be perfect. Your videos don't have to be perfect. As long as they can hear you and see you, if you mess up, that's okay. And honestly, I think that keeping those little errors in there. Like if you keep the phone call in this podcast, that makes it more authentic and it gets people to see that you're a human being, a real person. So I think perfections and little minor slip-ups actually make the content better. As far as where did I see my traction? Going back to not having any background in this, my goal was I just want to create content. I just kind of created a bunch of it. I put it out there. I had no real strategy other than I wanted to bring value and help educate. And then my belief was if I do a good job, that eventually people will come. So I do it all. I have a actually two written blogs now. I have three podcasts. I do videos that I put up on YouTube. I do the Amazon skill. And going back to a comment early on is the fact that different people consume content different ways. And even though I'm trying to narrow down a niche, I don't necessarily only want to work with people who like to read. I want to work with people who like to watch my content as well. So I want to be everywhere so that I can find the right people for me and not miss out on them because I don't have the content there. Now, it takes time. I'm all in on this and I don't golf. I don't go play poker with my friends. Like My life is pretty simple. What allows me to do this and I've really grown to enjoy it. So the traction that I've seen has been all over. I can cite Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and LinkedIn, subscriptions to the blog as all leading towards conversations that have been productive. And kind of the progression of how this has worked for me has been that the content initially did not drive inbound leads. What the content actually served as, which is very valuable and I never thought this would be the case, is that my content initially served as validation of referrals meaning a client gave my contact information to a friend or family member. They go out and do the Google search and they find my content. And multiple times I've received comments of, I really like this blog post or I saw your podcast. That's real cool. So that validated the referral that they got. And then about three years into doing this is when I started to see the inbound leads come. So I told you early on, it's a long game. It took a few years. And maybe if I was working with Traction House and being more strategic with where I'm placing things and leveraging SEO, which I do none of, I just put it out there, it would have been faster. So by all means, I'm not saying that you should take the route that I did, but I think putting it out there, it eventually begins to go the direction you have. If you work with a professional who knows that area and the best way to drive it to where it needs to be, you probably speed that process up. Justin, I'm just curious, this chat here, I'm just curious, have you, based on that three-year journey, have you done much paid campaign, paid advertising, paid media, sponsored content, that kind of thing at all? What's your experience on that? I've only tried a few Facebook ads and I've read that you need to really put the dollars behind those for those to be effective. And this is going to make me sound like a jerk, but the few times that I did the Facebook campaigns, and we should not judge books by covers, but the people that would respond, I could tell on the surface level weren't going to be good clients, whether that was just the posts that they were doing and the stuff that they were 
nothing that was on their Facebook page showed me that they actually were interested in finances or being responsible with their money. And I shouldn't judge people, but we're human beings and we do that. So my experience was right off the bat that the Facebook ads weren't getting the targeted demographic that I was trying to go for. And that could have been user error on what I put in there, but I haven't spent any money on actually the distribution other than those couple. All of my money has really been on starting the blog posts, buying the cameras, buying the microphones. Like that's where my dollars have been spent. And then the distribution has just been through the free channels. Sure. That's really interesting. I really, thanks for sharing that. The reason I asked that is because I think that there's a very separate thought process here. There's, there's making the content, getting behind the idea of producing content online and expressing yourself digitally. But then there's a whole other art to distributing that to a sets of eyeballs that really need to see it. And HubSpot, which is a digital marketing, their client relations management tool, they for like 10 years were totally against paid advertising. They're like, this isn't happening. You don't need it. Just all inbound, inbound, inbound. And just recently, some of their senior guys have come on and said, it's just too noisy now. If you're not putting some budget behind your blog posts, behind your sponsor content, the chances of it surfacing to visibility is going to be less and less just because there's so much content competing for people's attention these days. So, but I do think that That is an area, if you are going to spend a little bit of budget, make sure you seek out somebody that has a little bit of experience with the art of that stuff, because you can quickly throw down a couple thousand bucks onto Facebook ads channel or LinkedIn, and it's gone in a hurry. And you haven't really been set up to learn from it or optimize from it. And so once you have that content, you're proud of it. And that might be something to think about, but it's a case by case basis. I'm not saying go throw out 3000 bucks on LinkedIn tomorrow, but it is definitely something that could be useful. Our experience is that content is king. It's sort of like real estate and location. They're really got to strive to get the good content. I'm sorry. There's no easy road. Again, that's where the edge lies. So how many people are going to just shrug their shoulders and say, I don't want to do it. The more, the better. That's what has allowed for the opportunity for, I think, early adopters to take advantage of it. And now we're getting a bit more of a crowded space. So you've got to think about really kind of being targeted and and optimized in the way you want to do it. And I think this is another area where niching comes in really handy. If you're not trying to sell to the world, if you're selling to the smallest niche of niche, I'm with dentists who do dental work on seniors in the state of Oklahoma, you're going to have things that First of all, the market that you're trying to attack is far smaller. So you can niche down your target and it costs you less and you can be there all the time, right? You can be there every moment. If there's a 75 year old who has a root canal, you're there in Oklahoma, but, uh, but like, it's all right. I know that's some absurd <laughs> niching, but that's how good it can be. Like, that's how you have to think about things. Think about this. If we're going to go and compete with Tide, right. And we're going to wash clothes. We can't compete. But if we were going to say, okay, well, what does our detergent do that theirs doesn't? Well, it actually has this unique chemical in it that gets out axle grease from trains. And so all we would sell to are the mechanics that work on the axles of train cars, and we would own that market. And snowballs too. Then you get invited to the axle train conference where you get to speak to axle train folks. Precisely. Yeah. You become you become an expert in the field in your niche. And so kind of a circular conversation, niche creates an easier way to have content. You do, I think, have to think about where your tribe is. So is it a LinkedIn tribe? Is it a Twitter tribe? Is it a Facebook tribe? Is it a video tribe? Is it an audio tribe? But don't underestimate the power of the mediums that we are discussing today. The vast majority of people, even though it's getting crowded, my estimation is still that the vast majority of people in the financial services business are not there with unique messages. I think, as you mentioned, Chad, and confirm this for me, it's the shitty content that's now flooding 
the good content is harder to find. Yeah, it's just we talk about a noisy information economy. There's just so many things competing for our attention. Pull up your LinkedIn feed and start scrolling and look at all the things bidding for your attention. Just walk through the day and just become observant a little bit about the things bidding for your attention. And there's just so much of it. I think in the 70s, it was about 500 bids for your attention per day. And today it's between five and 10,000. And so the consequence of that is we've become so picky and so particular, and we can be, about what we choose to put our attention on. And it's got to be timely, it's got to be relevant, and it's got to be high value, and it's got to rise above the noise of the content that's out there. And so if all you put out is mediocre stuff that you got off of a stock site, or you just you didn't really put a lot of effort into it, you're probably not going to get a lot back, and it's going to take a long time. I want to dig into a few more tactical approaches, and we'll probably wrap it up. But we talked about niche You got to write your own content. Sadly, it's tough, but that's where success lies. It doesn't lie in your comfort zone. So what else can we do? If we were starting today, I'm sitting there as an asset manager who has that typical business, the typical kind of website that you see that we all see. Let's go around the table. What would you say that they should do? Yeah, uh, you touched on this when we first got started, but the first thing that I always advise people to do is take a look at your own behavior. If you go on LinkedIn and if you go on Twitter, what do you feel like engaging in? What does the image look like? What does the copy look like? What does the article look like? If you look at a website, what do you like in a website? What inspires trust? And if you do that for a couple hours, over a couple of days, you'll start to really get an understanding of consumers and what people click on. And and it's pretty alarming the amount of people that we see publishing bad content every day. And I just think it's because they've never done that homework. They would never click on that. I know they would never click on that, but they still choose to publish that stuff. So that's how I would start. Justin? When I've talked to advisors, kind of the process I take them through, if, if our goal is to share our story and who we are and what we're about, I think first off, kind of look inward and see who are you as a person. Walk yourself through what are your values, what's important to you, what would you want people to know about you? The next level would be same questions, but who are you as an advisor? So what are your principles on being an advisor, financial planning, investment philosophy? What are those all done? Just basically jot them down. And then magically, it would take some time to do it. How do you intertwine who you are as a person with your values as an advisor to start to begin to develop what your story is going to be and what are the things you're going to talk about and what are the interests that you want people to know you for? And I think that's a good starting point to how do you get your brand going and what do you want to be? So for me personally, if you read any or follow my content, you know that my family is very important. My three boys show up in the videos. They do the intro to my podcast. They're very prevalent in my work. You know that I like hip hop because either my blog is all about your Benjamins, which is a play off of a Puff Daddy song from when I was in high school. I put a mixtape out. I put rap videos in some of my uh, blog posts. I started Spotify Station. So you know that hip hop's a big thing. You know that fitness is a big part of my personal life. And I intertwine that with my financial planning beliefs. The minuscule things, you know that I have tattoos. And historically, a financial advisor would not have tattoos. If they did, they would hide those. I don't want to hide those. So I found all the things that are important to me, family, fitness, hip hop, letting myself come through so that those people, once I started writing, they know everything about me. What about the shoes, dude? The shoes. The shoes part is actually becoming more on my advisor audience. So real quick, I've, I grew up a big Michael Jordan fan, always loved shoes, took a care of them. I actually grew up for a while and quit spending money on shoes. But then recently, I bought a pair of Jordans to wear to a conference, got a lot of feedback. So now it's like back into buying Jordans to wear with my suits to kind of break the image of what advisors are, stuffy people who wear suits. Uh, I dress more trendy and then, you know, I just want to be myself. And I want people to know who I am so that if they come in and they see me in a Snoop Dogg t-shirt with some Jordans on, they are not surprised. And they're coming to me because of my expertise, which I have 
put out there through my other content. So they know I know my stuff. Who cares what type of music he likes or if he has tattoos or if he likes to wear Jordans to the office? He's a good financial advisor. Those things don't bother me. And in fact, I like that he's that way. It's building that tribe. So I don't know if I answered the question. I was on a tangent. I think you nailed it. I think that actually, so you've got this persona, this brand, you think about this as a person, you think about this as an advisor and you live that. And I think that again, coming back to, you know, the idea of a network effect and social platforms is people do business with you because of that. And because what it says about them, that they're cool, neat, and trendy, they don't want to be at an oak desk with a guy that's 65 wearing a suit. Like that's just not the way they perceive quality advice. So your audience builds for that. I think that those are exceptional examples. One final thought on something you said. So you you mentioned creating your brand and living that brand. It is much easier to live that brand if that brand is truly you. So if you create this facade of this personality that you want people to look at you, but that's not really you, you're going to slip up one day and not be yourself. It's going to come across that that's not genuine and you're a fraud. But if that brand that you create and that you put out there is truly you and you're living that every day, you never have to worry about misleading somebody. Very true. So now I want to actually just turn this a little bit because we understand the niche. We understand the content that we have to create. Get that done on your own brand. Let it level up your clients and your client referrals. And so Justin has taken the approach at this point, he's not paying for advertisement, sort of the retargeting or the expansion of that audience. You're dealing with one tribe, but there's probably four other tribes that are the same that you're just not in front of. And so I think that's where you guys, Traction House, can add quite a bit of value here is how do I get the message more broadly done? So now I've got my website. It's good. The website is to convert people. So they've read about me. They've read, I've got my niche. They've read my content. They go to the website. There's a call to action on the website. You guys have this in your presentation. I have it in mine. Here's what the website's designed to do. Know that in advance. And so it's going to convert leads. But how do we get more content to more people that are like-minded? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's two key ways that Simon and I think about distribution and targeting. One of them is title-based or professional targeting on LinkedIn. So if you are going after financial advisors or CIOs, LinkedIn is unprecedented, the best option to do that digitally. But the other thing we do is geo-targeting. And so Twitter and Facebook, the Google Display Network, which is 2 million sites, about 90% of internet traffic, which is the banner ads you'd see beside the Wall Street Journal or the Bloomberg, stuff like that. Those ad channels, you can actually plug in postal codes or zip codes and target homeowners that are 40 years to seven years old inside of those postal codes. Well, you can look up the tax data and you can find average homeowner incomes that are $200,000 or more. And you can also look and distill postal codes or or zip codes that have at least 50% of the filings within that zip code region have investment income. So what you're inferring there is these guys are wealthy and they've got their investment minded or typically. So if you're going to spend any money to be in front of a group of people that probably have investable assets or something that's probably a target market, that's one way to do it. And it's incredible how accessible on a budget level some of this stuff is. And I always use the cost of an expensive latte as an example, but cost of a Starbucks latte is like five bucks and change, something like that. Well, in Twitter, there's two ways you pay for attention. There's clicks. So you can pay to have somebody every time they click on something like your content that you're paying for in front of them, you get charged dollars. And usually that's about two, three bucks or something like that. Or on LinkedIn, it's about four or five bucks. It's a little bit more expensive. But there's another cost model called CPM, cost per thousand impressions. What that means is for the cost of a latte on Twitter, if you write a commentary on something in retirement, you can pay to have that show up in a thousand Twitter feeds within 50 mile driving distance at zip codes that have high income, investment minded folks. So, I mean, if you're going to start to go down the road of distribution and getting beyond the organic 
publishing of your content, which is the first step, obviously. That's kind of where Simon and I start to come in and think about taking it to the next level and scaling your expression digitally. But you got to be careful because a lot of very moving parts and variables in that. The other advantage too is because you can be incremental in your spend, after two, three days, you can start to optimize and figure out what messaging works, what one doesn't. There's a lot of options there and it's a whole other art to the science of this. Is that A-B testing? Sort yeah, of? we call that A-B testing. That's right. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the great thing about digital advertising is all the data that you get with your advertising. So if you put a billboard on the side of the street, you don't really know how many people are impacted positively by that. But if you put an ad online and if you A, B, C, D, E test different audiences, different messages, et cetera, over a matter of a couple of days, you'll get to see what's working well. And after that, the ones that aren't working well, you stop spending money on those and you spend it back on the ones that are working really well for you. I like that. So you do more of what's working and less of what's not. Yeah, you scale your spend into the stuff that converts. Yeah. All that data is not really available in most other domains when you're working on this. And so am I right in the assumption that if you niche this down more, you can get a tighter, smaller audience that you might be able to be more omnipresent in? Or is that, can you niche down like that? Or I'll give you an example. If you want to go after chief invest, if, you're, if you sell to institutions, you want to go after chief investment officers, there's 12,000 contacts on LinkedIn with the title chief investment officer in the United States. So you could go all in for a year and just focus on influencing that market and being in front of them you can be outreaching to them, connect requesting to them. You can be putting content in front of their feeds. You can start groups and invite them to it, start to foster conversations digitally with that group. And over time, you're going to start to develop some awareness and subliminal priming, and you're going to get on their radar, which is the first step. If you sell to CIOs, they need to know you exist before anything else. So they have to hear about you. And then you can start to influence them and, and all that stuff. So this is where it gets really exciting in my eyes. Justin, do you have any thoughts there? I'm the worst person to talk about this since I don't do any of it. I have, well, I just started doing call to actions, but I'll share why. So when I started All About Your Benjamins, the reason for that was to just put out content, position myself as an expert, and just get my name out there. I intentionally put it separate from my company website because I wanted to just educate. And I was hesitant to put call to actions because I, I wanted to be authentic and really be about educating. I think part of the reason I did that is I didn't have a defined audience of who I really, really wanted other than if you like my stuff, you can find me. It's not hard. When I pivoted towards working with entrepreneurs, I know I want to work with entrepreneurs and I'm much more confident and comfortable saying, here's a call to action. If you're an entrepreneur, you like this, I'm working with entrepreneurs and want to continue, click here to come find me. So I think for my mindset, and this is just a personality flaw, it was much easier for me to do call to actions and start to go down this path. And I think I will start to spend some money on targeted advertisements to this specific demographic, this niche of entrepreneurs. But without that, I wasn't comfortable doing it. I think that's a really great example of the journey. Again, come back to the beginning. And Justin, you said it very well, I think, oh, you're going to be overwhelmed. Like you're just going to say, okay, I give up. I listened to the podcast at the beginning. I thought maybe, but now I'm, I'm not going to do this because I can't. I think that you really want to take away from this that you should start, that you will build momentum. And if you put time and effort into it, you can build a pretty significant tribe. You can get content out there and you can retarget the content with scale, right? The idea that there are 12,000 CIOs that you might want to target as an asset manager. I'm sure that there's that many, whether it's doctors, engineers, whatever niche, entrepreneurs within the Indiana region or whatever Justin's trying to target. When you get to that niche and you can talk to that tribe and you've got that solid message, that's a journey. And it sounds to me like, Justin, you're at the point where, hey, I'm my pencil's sharp enough on this. I'm willing to do some targeting and some distribution of my content. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, totally. So we talked about some some tactics, I think. Again, I would take the approach that 
when you get into these niche areas of retargeting, targeting distribution, we are actually using people to help us on that because it's just difficult. It's just an area that we're not experts in. And I think in my mind, once you have the message and you have some good content, really think about engaging with these distribution experts. I know that you guys at Traction House have a great video that just walks through an example of all of this. I would encourage people to go look at that. Remember what you're doing. You're educating yourself before you buy. So also meta this, observe your behavior as you go down the path of, I'm going to do content creation. I'm going to go look into this. Just watch yourself. Just sit beside yourself and observe what you're going to do. And that's what people are doing as they look at you is whether you're an asset manager or wealth manager, this is what they're doing. And so make note of that. Go look at your digital platform at this moment. Go look at the content you have. A lot of people also have content already. It's just in the wrong place. Like they've done a great job on their website or they have they have a an example financial plan that they'd be happy to provide but there's nowhere to get it. There's nowhere to get an example financial and estate plan that they can download that you've also done a webinar on. And here's the example of the person going through this retirement process and all the funny stuff that happened to them. So a lot of times you just have the content, you just haven't structured it properly. I just think that this is a tremendous opportunity. It provides massive scale and the uniqueness of the message is what provides small and mid-sized managers. This is Schumpeter, this is disruption. JP Morgan is not going to be edgy with their message. It's going to be canned. It has to be. But unique independent advisors and asset managers, that's not the case. You can really kind of niche in there. So any final thoughts, guys, as we wrap up? Just try it. Be pragmatic about if you're going to spend money on advertising, just be paying attention to it like a hawk and making sure you're aware of what you're testing and stuff like that. But no, I mean, just be prepared to do the hard work. And I think that Justin nailed it. You got to be personal. You got to be unafraid to be you. Make it evident that you're proud of who you are and you take a stand. You stand for things and you don't stand for other things. And that's okay. That's what builds a dedicated tribe is being personal and not being afraid to, to let people know that this is who I am. Yeah. My last thought is it's a hell of a lot of work. That's for sure. But everything changes when you get that first lead. It's like that first smile on the baby's face. Absolutely. Exactly. Jaybird, yeah, you, you got, got, you got anything else for us to wrap up? Be authentic. Be genuine, and if you're going to do it, commit to it being the long game. Nice. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much for taking the time. I would encourage all the listeners to actually go and peruse all of the information from Justin Castelli's content and websites and from Traction House and from Resolve Asset Management and many, many, many others that are out there. We're certainly not the box on this, but I hope what we've done is moved you or edged you a little bit further in the direction of taking advantage of what is occurring pervasively across our society with social platforms and with the network effect and just building that into your business. I know a lot of folks spend a lot of time on trying to add an extra half of 1% to performance returns, but if you were to double your marketing efforts and that were to double the size of your business, the impact to you as an entrepreneur would be significantly greater. And with that, thanks again, gentlemen, and uh, over and out. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode in the show notes at investresolve.com forward slash blog. You can also learn more about Resolve's approach to investing by going to our website and research blog at investresolve.com, where you will find over 200 articles that cover a wide array of important topics in the area of investing. We also encourage you to engage with the whole team on Twitter by searching the handle at InvestResolve and hitting the follow button. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email, social media, 
And if you really learned something new and believe that our podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time.